You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at cinemaaustralia.com.au. I do believe I was assimilated. I didn't even really realise I was black. I'm the grey fella. And I got that from mixing black and white together. As long as we possibly can, we ought to aim at having a homogeneous population. Part of the idea was to get the fairy kids into the, into the community, blend us in. Then when we hitch up, obviously, with a wadula fella and a white fella, we're breeding out the black fella in us. I love being Aboriginal. I love it. But, but then to be one foot in, in both sides. You're spending every day feeling like you have to, so you have to justify that you're a good person. The more that it got harder for their black kids, the more they, they dug in for us. Thank you for loving me. The grey line just seemed to sum up who I am and all the other kids like me. That's the trailer for The Grey Line. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by Perth filmmaker Scott Quayle to discuss The Grey Line a powerful, eye-opening WA shot documentary which tells the story of Helen Dwyer, also known as Ellen Collard. Taken from her parents during a time when Aboriginal children were removed from their families through government-mandated policy, Helen was raised by a middle-class family in the suburbs of Perth and believed she was their biological daughter until the age of 14. Despite being raised by a very loving foster family, Helen has never felt like she truly belonged. Not white, not black, she walks a very lonely grey line. This is her story of hurt, a longing to find her true self and to finally be accepted for who she is. As you will hear in this interview, Scott is a relative newcomer to documentary filmmaking of this scale. Scott has released two short films previously, the 2019 documentary Coming Home, Isle of Man TT, and the short documentary Shill about a public speaker with a stutter. With a background in corporate marketing, Scott now runs his own production company called Life Films, creating one-hour documentaries of everyday people for their family and friends. Having moved to Australia at the age of 10 from the Isle of Man, Scott tells Cinema Australia that making the grey line has been a confronting experience, which you'll hear more of in this interview. The Grey Line is now available for private, school and corporate screenings, which includes a Q&A with Scott and Helen. For details, visit thegreyline.com.au and to start to date with future screenings of the film, uh, follow Life Films WA on Instagram and Facebook. Anyway, enjoy. Scott, thank you for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Hey, uh, I want listeners to know about my first experience watching The Grey Line. Uh, I was invited to watch the film at the back lot here in Perth while the film was in post-production. I remember coming into the cinema while it was being edited and graded and you and Ian Hale, who runs the back lot as well as Halo Films, uh, paused the post-production and played the film for me. Uh, mm. To say that I was moved beyond words would be an understatement. I feel like I'm constantly saying this in interviews with filmmakers who are telling First Nations stories, but my schooling and education was appalling when it comes to Australia's true history and our treatment uh, of our Indigenous people. I've been educating myself on these issues for many years, but stories and documentaries like The Grey Line are such a service in educating people on stories like Helen's, which you're telling here. So congratulations on The Grey Line, Scott. This is a film you should be very proud of. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And um, I feel the same about my schooling. Uh, yes. I, I often talk about it when I'm talking to people about this film that I went to primary school in the UK, but um, 
emigrated to Australia when I was 10 years old. So sort of finished off primary school and, and spent all of my high school here in Australia. And all we got taught was um, Captain Cook, Captain James Sterling, I think was relevant to WA somehow. And that, and that was it. And, and so I've um, had to do my own education around this space and, and this film has really, really helped me to do that. Yeah. What avenues are you taking to educate educate yourself just out of curiosity? Is there anything that you can recommend for other people who are listening in similar situations to ours? Uh, I think it's just having chats with the people involved in the film, to be honest. Um, it The one thing that has blown me away, because um, we do Q&As after we show the, the film in uh, public screenings, um, is the huge number of people who have the same story or very similar stories. Um, so I, I've sat down with, uh, obviously Helen, a great deal, but also her children, uh, also Amy, uh, who is a producer and acts in the reenactment scenes in the film, uh, Amy's friends who also participate in the film, like there's so many people. And so I just sort of talk to them and, 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 and hear what, um, what, what they or their family have been through and, it's tragic. It, it's it's heartbreaking. It's a, a word I use, and this is, this could be a pretty strong word. Is I think it's it's an embarrassment to our country, to be honest. Like yeah. people are so patriotic. Uh, Australians are so patriotic, and I'm one of them. I, I love this country, um, but it is a really really uh, tragic part of our short history. Um, uh, well, it's not short in you know. Uh, I guess, short white history. Uh, it, it, it's, and I used the word embarrassing in, the, in a Q&A the other day because that's that's generally how I feel about it. Like, and I'm so glad that now we're starting to share more of these stories. There are a lot more people who um, are educating themselves and are genuinely interested coming from a good place and really, really want to see change. Yes, yeah. I did an interview recent, uh, recently with uh, Sensible Antics, who's uh, an Australian rapper, and, um, you know, we, we were discussing black history and Australia's black history. Australia, uh, artists in Australia are doing such a service in sharing these stories. I feel like it's the arts community who are, who are, who are doing the best job at the moment to educate people. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's, um, I guess, because you can... You stories is one of the best ways to learn. Like people just remember stories mm. and, um, you know, that's always the way I learn best uh, in school or, or wherever. So I feel like if you can do a good job of telling a story, make it compelling, make it, um, this one's hard to relate to if your family hasn't been through this, but um, certainly in the Aboriginal community, it's extremely relatable. Uh, then people want to talk about it and they want to share it. They want to share that experience with um, people who don't know as much about this subject. Yes. Um, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into Helen's story with you. But uh, as I do with this podcast, I like to go back to the early beginnings of one's career. Uh, you didn't start your career as a filmmaker, did you? You started in uh, corporate marketing. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. It won't take long to talk about my career because it's not very long. <laughs> yes. Uh, I've, I'm turning 45 this year. I probably really only got into filmmaking and I've used that in um, – what is it, inverted commas, um, uh, quotation marks, whatever that saying is, it, because I really, I made a very, a 15 minute short when I was learning how to use my camera and learning how to edit in Premiere Pro. And that was in 2020, um, tw about the 2019, uh, 2019 TT motorbike race in the Isle of Man. Uh, I then loved it so much that I made a, another short. This one was a 30-minute short about a public speaker who had a really severe stutter. That was just somebody I met uh, randomly doing a corporate job for him. Uh, but I just fell in love with filmmaking. And, and so this one, I guess, is my most serious production so far. Um, and I'm really, really proud that I've been able to do it in a relatively short period of time and not let age stand in my way, not, not let, um, you know, it's something I'm quite passionate about is, is, is for people, if they have, um, you know, a true passion that they want to follow is, is just have a crack. And that's all I've done. I've just had a crack. 
What was it? Uh, I just I just want to go back to the corporate marketing side of it for a moment. What was it about corporate marketing that made you want to want to get out of out of that line of work? <laughs> oh, geez, I have to be careful here. Um, okay, uh, I, d- I found that I uh, and this is ironic because now I'm, I'm different. But I found at the time I didn't really enjoy managing people. Mm. Um, having worked on this latest film. Um, I found that I did a huge amount of managing people, but actually really enjoyed it. So I have actually evolved in that space. Um, but really the, the the main answer is that I, I wanted to be doing work that I was proud of. Um, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, working in office and, 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 and contributing to a, biz, a business, but it just wasn't, it wasn't for me. And you reach a certain age for me, that was about 40 where you sort of go, uh, what else is there? What else can I do? I want to leave some sort of legacy, something that my kids and my grandkids can be proud of. And I felt like if I could make films that made a difference in society, that that raised important topics that people could talk about, that would be something to be proud of. Yeah, yeah. I could tell I'll- you how I um, how I got into that in the, the life stories. Um, side of it if you would like yes i I do want to get into into life films in in a second um uh, but the reason that i wanted to ask you about the corporate marketing side of it is because i've you know i've been doing this for 10 years now and i don't know a lot of filmmakers or a lot of people within the film industry who don't have a side hustle as well Um, (laughs) you know it's so it's so difficult to make film your full-time job um, so yes. I do like hearing people's stories, you know, uh, about what they were doing outside of film and and what made them switch. And uh, yeah, I think uh, what you've just said there is is a great story. Um, did you have a general interest in film throughout your life? No, no. Really? I, and 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 this is embarrassing to say, but I was scared of cameras, <laughs> and I and I mean scared in the sense that I did not have a clue how they worked. Yes. There were so many buttons. The menus are so complicated. Mm. Um, the jargon, the lenses, like everything to me was was foreign. And that very first film I made where I just used it as a bit of a, a teaching sort of journey, I had to learn everything. Like ISO, didn't know what that was, didn't know apertures, I mean, I didn't really even know how to change it. I had to look up a YouTube video on how to change a lens. Like, do you know how, luckily there's no, there's no one around and I can say it now because I guess in some ways I've sort of proved myself in, you know, some small way, but um, I can laugh at it now. But at the time I was, I was watching this YouTube video going, God, if anyone ever found out that I had to Google how to change a lens on my camera, like, oh my God. <laughs> I reckon there'd be more people out there than you know who use YouTube as, <laughs> YouTube as a as a um, education tool for making movies. Uh, uh, yeah, I still do to this day. Like I, yeah. I, I, uh, I'm not, I'm learning a lot more about Premiere Pro, but I yes. still Google constantly on how to how to do certain things in there. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. It's a great way to do it. Um, but other than uh, the technical side of film, what about uh, uh, watching films in general? Were, were you a, a keen film enthusiast? Yes, but I wouldn't say I was a boffin. Like yeah. I love, I love films. I love, uh, and it's hard because my wife is not really a film watcher. So uh, as I've gotten older, it's, it's been harder to find the time with three kids to really sit down and and, and binge films. But yes. what I have found um, definitely in the last few years, and I guess since the inception of Netflix, is I love documentaries, and it is a common ground I have with my wife. So I would say we we easily watch two or three documentaries a week um and that i think really sparked something inside me um where i was like wow you can there's so many amazing stories out there and you can kind of pick one and put your own spin on it and 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 do it in a certain way that only you would do it and that's actually what really really appealed to me Yes, um, Australia. I think we produce so many documentaries in this country, and top quality, world class documentaries as well. Have you seen anything, uh, any Australian uh, documentaries recently that have really stood out for you? I watched one recently, and I, I'm I'm struggling to remember what it was called, but it was about um, Aboriginal artists in the prison system. And I wish I could remember what it was called. It is on Netflix. Yes. Um, and that was 
really, really compelling. I, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, Our Law is on SBS. Oh, yes, that one, that's again, that's one. Indigenous as well. That one's really good. But I also have a, a real love of, um, and I, I, I'm not sure if I would ever make one, but I love some of the really, really crazy um, stories that you get on the um, on the Netflix documentaries. Uh, the Legend of Cocaine Island, I think, is um, I just that was probably one of the first I saw. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, I just highly recommend it. It's just kind, of, it's entertaining, it, and and that's kind of maybe where I might move for my next film is is that. I think there's a style of documentary that blurs entertainment and, and you know, documentary, and that's what this particular one was. And there's lots and lots of others, the Tinder Swindler and all those ones. Um, I enjoy all of them. Um, where you're blending documentary with, you know, creative storytelling. And, and, and I think that's also what, lit me up inside is um, where you can shoot a documentary, you're telling a factual real life story, but you can do it in a really, really cinematic way. And that's actually what I wanted to do with the gray line. I feel like I achieved that to some extent uh, with the reenactment scenes where, where you can make it beautiful to watch as well, because, you know, there's some amazing documentaries, but, you know, especially some of the obdoc stuff where, you know, it's real life unfolding in front of the camera. And I do love that. And I think yeah. there's some amazing ones. Um, but to me, they're not necessarily cinematic. And and this is just my own personal preference. I love the process of making something look beautiful. Yes, yes. And the grey line certainly does look beautiful. It's one thing that really stood out. It, it is quite cinematic. Um, I guess, uh, you know, a lot of people can... Um, a lot of people make the talking head style documentary where it's just people talking to camera. Um, yep. So sometimes that can be uh, quite boring, but uh, what you've done here is, yeah, it's quite cinematic. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot because it's something I really um, shot for, you know, yes. and I didn't didn't know whether I could do it, um, but it was definitely the goal and um, I absolutely am happy with the, the final product. Yes. Um, so tell us about your company, Life Films. How did that one come about? Okay, this story is also embarrassing, so don't judge me, but... Um, <laughs> We were, it's quite touching as well, but as the first part's embarrassing. We, I was sitting on the couch watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians with my wife. Yeah. Something we just uh, get, escape from reality, watch something crazy for, for <laughs> half an hour. But anyway, this particular episode, the Kardashian kids for their mum's, I don't might have been her 50th or 60th birthday, bought her the gift of a film crew coming into their home, interviewing the mum and making a story of her life and making like a, a, a documentary, but but for just the family to watch, not not to be released, but just the family to hold, hold on to as a memento. And I thought that was a really, really wonderful idea and didn't really do anything about it. But then maybe a few months after that, uh, my wife came home from the school drop-off, had bumped into one of her friends from high school. And unfortunately, they had some real tragic news that um, her friend's husband had been given maybe three months left to, to live. He, he had a very uh, severe form of cancer. Um, they were, he was going to leave behind two young boys. And um, my wife said, you know, I'd love to do something for them. What, what could we do? And then just randomly, we thought of this idea about, well, why don't we make a film about his life? And that is something that he can um, leave behind as a legacy for his, his boys. Mm -hmm. So we text them straight away and it was their response, which came back within about 30 seconds where I thought, oh, wow, you know, this, this could be a really good idea because they were so positive about it. And we, I think we, we had him over at our house within two days because obviously time is of the essence. Yeah. I filmed that on an iPhone. <laughs> like, you know, I don't actually want to go back and look at that ever again, but, um, but I, I, I filmed it on my phone uh, learned how to use some sort of basic video editor software um, and spent hours and hours crafting this this uh, story of his life. Gave it. Uh, he unfortunately passed away as I was editing the film, which um, which was was heartbreaking. And actually, I, I felt the pressure at that point. Uh, and that's one of the things I've learned is to work under pressure. I've done a number of these types of films for people, and there's no reshoots. Like you know. I've, I've had that. He's not the only person who's passed away during the edit. Mm. Um, 
so anyway, we we gave her the film at the funeral. Um, she didn't know whether she could watch it because I was obviously it was very raw at the time. Uh, but then a few days later, got this amazing message just saying how grateful she was that that we did this for her. And uh, and then I guess it just went from there. I I came up with the name Life Films and I turned it into um, that that business where we make legacy videos for for people not to be shared in the public, but just just for family and, and future generations. I think the other thing, I know I'm going on a bit here, but yeah. the other thing is, um, you know, we live in this age now where I would give anything to remember how my grandparents sounded or looked, the certain looks that they would give. I don't have any of that. Like, you know, my, my grandparents have all passed away. I have memories of them. I've got photos, but I don't have anything where like uh, the sound of my granddad's laugh, like I kind of remember how he was a really, really happy, friendly guy, but I would love to go back and watch, watch him. And so I feel like we have this opportunity now. And um, of course anyone can do it with their phone, but I guess what I try and do is make something that looks really, really beautiful. Yes. Yeah. It's such a beautiful service. Uh, uh, My uh, grandmother passed away a week ago, actually. And this whole week I've just been thinking, I loved this woman. She was a huge part of my life, but I actually know nothing about her. You know, I only uh, know, yeah, only know like you know the last uh, the last thirty years of her thirty years of her life, and and anything and before we, that, yeah. I know nothing about. And you think about it, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how old your your, your grandmother was, but yes. you know, you know, seventy, eighty, you fit a lot of life into that, and I'm the same. Didn't I, I know bits and pieces from what my dad's told me, but but. You know, they they did some amazing things, and and I only learned them after his death. Yes, yes, it's yeah, it's a real shame. Um, you mentioned there that uh, this gentleman wasn't the first person to pass away uh, during the edit of one of your films. Is yep. there a commonality with those with the people who are wanting these legacy films made? Is it always because someone's dying, or, or, or... often it is? Yes, yeah. often it is. Um, but it will also be a milestone birthday. Yes. So, and I would say usually 70, 75 or eighty. Yeah, How does it I think, affect you, you mentally to hear these stories? Um, I think I have an ability to kind of compartmentalise it and, and focus on the positive. I'm sitting in front of this person because they want me here. They want to tell their story and they want it to be captured for their, for their children and future generations. So I just focus on that. I only focus on the positive and and just see it as a service that I'm doing, um, because I feel like if I if I went the other way, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. And so that's how I get through it. Yes. Yeah. Um, terrific. Uh, so let's move into the grey line now. Uh, as again, I can't I can't praise this film enough. I, I really 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 loved it. Um, when were you first introduced to Helen Dwyer's story? Uh, so it dates back a couple of years. And um, that second film I was talking about, about the public speaker with a stutter. So I'm a big advocate of anyone. Um, I'm not sure if your audience has sort of aspiring filmmakers or first time filmmakers, but I'm a big advocate of just try and get your work out there in any way you can. So what I actually did was I paid the back lot to rent the cinema and um, invited 50 people to, to come and watch the film and made an event out of it um, because I felt like I'd worked so hard on that film. Um, I would love people to actually see it rather than just sort of chucking it online and, and hoping that people stumble across it. So a few days before that screening was planned, I went to the back lot just to check that, you know, how does it look on the big screen and how will the colours be on that screen and how does it sound? And Ian Hale who owns the back lot and, and Halo Films, he he sat down and, and watched it with me. And I thought he was just being nice, but he was really sort of singing its praises. And I had a lot of sort of self-doubt, still do. Um, and I was like, oh, he's just, you know, being nice to me. But then anyway, as I was walking out, he goes, oh, look, because I was telling him a bit about live films and how I, you know, kind of specialise in, in just telling one person's story. He said, I, I spoke to um, this Aboriginal lady a couple of days ago. This is her story. He sort of gave me a bit of a, an overview of it. He goes, I think you would be perfect to make this film. And 
I still didn't believe him at that point. <laughs> uh, I was like, is this guy serious? So anyway, I got, I got Ellen's details and um, I should point out, I call her Ellen. She has two names because yeah. she was stolen. Uh, I call her Ellen in the film. She's Helen. Um, I got her details. We um, caught up for coffee um, with her daughter spoke for maybe hour, hour and a half, but just had a really, really good connection. And I expressed my severe um, doubts of whether I was the right person to, to make this film, partly because of my inexperience and a, a, probably a bigger part of it was the fact that I'm a white guy from um, from Britain yes. and who am I to to tell your story? When you see the film, and the reason it's called The Grey Line is because there's a huge white influence in Ellen's life and a huge um, black or Aboriginal influence in Helen's life. And she wanted me. She, she felt like maybe with me we could cover all sides. And uh, I was still really, really dubious. And I, I asked her a bunch of times, are you sure you want me for this? But we did have some sort of unspoken connection with each other she trusted me and I took that trust and that was the one thing that I focused on beyond anything else was she has put her story in my hands I have to do this justice I cannot put my own take on this like it's just her words her story I'm just the one kind of piecing it together in a way that we can get it across in 30 minutes, because that was the other massive challenge is, is how do you tell such a complex story and get it down as a, as a short film. Uh, and, and I guess, yeah, it, it, it sort of happened. Uh, I'm blown away now to, to think about, wow, it actually, we did pull it off, but we did. Right place at the right time. 100% because I literally think Ian met her a couple of days before, so it would have been fresh in his mind. Yes, yes. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at cinemaaustralia.com.au. Um, tell us about Helen as a person. I'm, I'm curious to, to hear about Helen from your point of view. She's beautiful. Um, she is such a... Okay, well, probably the most important thing is she, she carries severe pain, um, you know, and she's had a very, very tough life. So um, I can maybe just touch on the story a little bit, is that um, she was stolen when she was three months old from um, a country hospital, put into a foster family in um, Carlisle in Perth, sort of a middle-class suburb, um, went to private school, had a very loving family, also had, uh, there was five, they adopted five Aboriginal kids. Um, so they were from all over WA. Um, Ellen was the oldest, but she didn't find, she thought she was white. And that's where the story sort of gets interesting. Her, her parents, uh, foster parents never really told her. Um, and it was only when she was 14 that she found out um, when she met her biological parents. And then her her life sort of unraveled at that point. She didn't know who she was. She didn't have a sense of identity. Um, she didn't know where she fit in the world and she's carried that. She describes it as, as a black hole. Like she just has this big black hole in her heart that um, she's never been able to fill. And the reason uh, it's called the gray line is because she's not, white because of how she looks, even though she was kind of raised in that society. She's not black because when she tries to connect with her biological family, she's just different. Mm. It's not her fault. She's just different because that's how she was raised. Mm. Um, so she doesn't fit in anywhere. And so she walks this gray line between black and white and um, yeah, still to this day, is very, very lonely, has had four failed marriages, um, lots and lots of, of issues around mental health. However, a, an amazing, beautiful person. And when you speak to her, you're drawn to her. Like yeah. there's something about her. 
um, and people see this in the Q, obviously, and through the film, but also in the Q and A's. Um, she's an amazing person with a huge amount of resilience, extremely brave to um, to tell her story and and to share this with the world. And um, yeah, I really admire her. Tell us about um, Helen's family and how they reacted when they were told that that uh, a film was going to be made about their mum. Um, which family? <laughs> yes, well, all of the family. I, I, to be honest, I don't know because yes. I, um, I kind of left it to to her to navigate. And and look, it, I I imagine there is still today some some politics around it. I felt like I I wanted to stay one step removed from that because I didn't want to insert myself into her life or her family's life. Yes. All I really wanted to do was just tell her story. Mm. Um, I didn't, because uh, it, it's so complex and, and on both sides, you know, and the one thing I think Helen does beautifully when telling her story is she understands both sides and yeah. and doesn't there's there's no I think when people watch the film they'll be surprised to see there's no anger yeah. she gets it mm. um, it just sucks that you know this this the whole thing happened it's ridiculous and the the part that you know we do mention it it's one line in the film but the part that really really actually gets me is it was just the matron in the hospital who happened to be on shift that day who made that decision. Yeah, yeah. Like that one person. Yes. I mean, obviously it was policy and all this stuff, but she got taken to hospital because she was sick. Mm. That's parents who are neglecting their kids. Don't take their kids to the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I, I'll go off on a rant if I keep talking about that. But, no, no. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's it's just another reason why people should try to, you know, seek this film out and see it however they can um, because there is obviously there is much more to this story than what we're discussing here. Um, uh, tell us about Helen's daughter and, and how she became involved in the making of this film because she's on board as producer, right? Yeah, that's Kaya. Um, Kaya. Kay was there from day one. So she was in the uh, coffee shop when we first met. Um, she's been a huge part of um, making this all happen. I love Kaya and her passion, her support of her mum, because the other thing you hear this term, um, multi-generational trauma, yeah. like that's a thing. And all of Ellen's kids feel it like it's, it's another tragic, tragic part to this whole story and what happened in this country. I admire Kaya's bravery as well because, um, you know, she supported her mum the whole way through and I love when Kaya gets a chance to stand in front of an audience after we've shown the film and and talk more about it because she's so eloquent in how she speaks, so well-educated around this space and um, I've told her many, many times that she, I actually, while it's her mum's story, I actually think it'll be Kaya who um, who creates genuine change in our in our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kaya feels just as important to this story um, as Helen does, almost. Yeah, it's uh, because it, it it it's a sort of a domino effect. It just yeah. filters all the way down, and and I'm, I know Helen is very proud and, and and I'm proud of her kids too, where at some point people need to break the cycle and, um, you know, you, you, you meet Kaya's kids, Ellen's grandkids, and they're beautiful. We managed to get them in the film, which mm-hmm. I really, really was happy about in the little reenactment scene um, because I guess, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn, but if, the whole thing around stolen generations is is a lot of these kids weren't taught what what family is. They weren't um, given amazing role models, and there was so much pain and suffering, and that gets transferred to those kids. Those kids grow up to be parents, and they maybe don't know how to be a great parent because nobody has ever showed them. Mm. You know, so um, it's it's. It's people like Kaya and there's so many more people 
like her who who are breaking that cycle and making meaningful change. And it's amazing to see and to be a small part of it. Yeah. And um, I guess, uh, you know, some of what we're saying here can come across as being quite grim, but both Helen and Kay, I, I had the pleasure of meeting them recently as well. Uh, they're rays of sunshine. Oh, uh, absolutely. When you yeah. meet them, yeah. they, they are just, they're such beautiful people. They're lovely, kind, um, yeah, a genuine, a genuine pleasure to be around. Um, yes. Uh, you mentioned uh, Helen's grandkids then as well, or Kaya's kids. Uh, yes. Tell us about working with them in this film um, and, and those reenactment scenes. We just wanted, it was important to Ellen that, that she wanted her um, real family to be in the film. So whilst we did use actors for um, a couple of the um, major roles, um, it's all non-speaking parts. We're still listening to, to Ellen's voice as we're watching the reenactments. Um and they were just quite simple scenes, but it was a beautiful, it was a really lovely thing. I thought we all did was to get. Um, it was actually uh, Kaya's son and um, Kaya's sister Rebecca's daughter who played um, Ellen's kids in the reenactment scene, which is roughly 1997 when um, Ellen, uh, her her foster parents have both passed away. She feels totally isolated and alone, and she decides to go bush and live with her biological family. So she grabs her kids, um, packs all her stuff up, hops in the car and drives out to the bush. And so we reenacted that scene um, with her real life grandkids and they were awesome. You know, it wasn't the most complicated (laughs) role ever, which is why I felt we could do it. Really, they just kind of had to carry some suitcases and look out the window of the car. But um, it was really special to be able to do that. And I know every time her family watches the film, um, they all get a kick out of that. Oh, that's wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. And they'll, they'll have that forever now, you know, and then their kids and, and their kids. Exactly. It's, it's, exactly. That's really beautiful. Um, uh, now that the film, now that you're obviously done with the film uh, shooting it, will you maintain a relationship with Helen and her family? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. we were um, saying that uh, we were doing a little vox pop at the end of the screening on Sunday and, um, you know, Ellen sees me as her son now and... Um, that's really, really special. She said that in, um, she said it to me privately. She said it on, on camera yeah. uh, and it means a lot. And, you know, she has a real strong connection with my wife. Um, the, the reason for that is the, the main part of the um, story was based off a, a three hour interview that we did with Ellen right at the start of the project. Uh, it was in a, a room in a old 1950s house in Bassendine and, uh, my wife, I decided I wanted my wife to do the interview because she's a counsellor and she knows how to deal um, with people who've gone through trauma in their life. She knows how to hold that space for them. And that's actually the most important thing is, you know, we were taking Ellen back through some really, really traumatic parts of her life and getting her in detail to tell us about them. My wife did an amazing job for those three hours to make Ellen feel safe. And from that day on, whenever Ellen sees my wife, Tracy, she makes a beeline for a big, massive hug, absolutely loves her comments on every single one of Tracy's Facebook posts, signs all of them off as uh, love. She calls herself our black nan, um, signs all of them off Has a real, even though she's only met my kids a couple of times, she loves them because she's seen them sort of growing up over the last few years on Facebook. And, um, and that was special to get to introduce my kids to Ellen was amazing when we did the family and friends screening. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's um, that, that, that part of it's been beautiful. Yes. Oh, that's such a beautiful story. I, I love hearing these stories of connection and people coming together like this. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. Um I want to ask you about um, being on set and telling this very strong and powerful story because it's one that does really hit hard. And I stood at the back of the cinema during a recent screening in Perth and all I could see from the back of the cinema were people wiping away tears, um, uh, which paints a very good picture regarding how strong this story is. It did make me wonder, though, was this film a fun experience for you and Helen and her family while making it? I mean, how did you keep spirits up on set, uh, you know, while you were telling these stories? We 
was it fun? Oh, look, there were parts of it that were fun, to be honest. The reenactment scenes were fun. I think the hardest part was that three-hour interview that I I told you about. I think once we once we had that, and that was one of the very, very first things, if not the first thing that we shot, um, obviously, as you can imagine, that was an extreme bonding experience for, for all of us in that room. So I felt like once we got that, that was almost the hard part was out of the way. And then, um, and then we could maybe where the funds. Yeah. And look, it was fun. Like we would go out for the day with Ellen and take her to different locations. And cause we wanted some lots of different contemplative shots of her um, in different locations in the bush at the beach and um, different national parks. And so between takes, yeah, we would be driving to a different spot. We'd be listening to music in the car. So all of that, actually was a lot of fun. Um, and for me, it was a huge amount of fun the day we shot a bunch of the reenactment scenes. I think we did a eight or 10 hour day. Uh, we had quite a lot of people in, it was all done in the same house that we shot the, the main interview in. And for me, that was maybe the day I sort of felt maybe I am a director because there was a lot happening that day and it was extremely stressful and um, full on, but I loved it. And I think it, that was maybe the day where I felt, yeah, I think I do want to direct films. Yes. Um, like it was because <laughs> I felt like I was really doing it. I'd been on a lot of sets before, a lot of corporate sets, TV commercials, all that sort of thing. So I've seen it, mm. um, but to be running it myself, um, that was pretty special. So that, that's wonderful. That, to me, that sounds like you're, you're in this for the long term now. You're, you're keen to make more movies, which is exciting for everyone. I hope so. I hope so. It's, it's actually, um, you know, probably my biggest issue at the moment is, is thinking, what do I do next? Because, um, you know, this is, this is pretty powerful. Um, seems to be getting a really, really good response. And um, so I, I really want to choose my, ne my next project carefully. Yes. Um, you touched on my next question briefly with one of your previous answers, but I, I still want to ask you this question because I've got a feeling that you have more to tell here. But um, Screen Hub, which is an online publication, they published an opinion piece recently with their headline, uh, Why I Want to Boycott the Survival of Kindness by Rolf Tahir, um, uh, with the subhead, Why Are We Celebrating a Film by a Visionary White Australian Director? that objectifies black and brown people. Um, having made the grey line and being welcomed by Helen and her family to tell Helen's story, what do you make of articles like this and this idea that white people can't tell black stories? Well, I haven't read the article, so it's hard for me to comment totally. Um, I, I, without reading the article, it's it's hard for me to comment, but I, I, I guess I still get it. I felt it. Like I felt the pressure. I probably put, I focused a lot on that. Um, not talking to people, not getting judged by anyone. It was all in my head. But I grappled with that, that the entire time uh, I was working on this film. And it wasn't until we did the family and friends screening where we were able to get all of the Indigenous um, people family and friends who were involved in the project into that cinema. Um, we had some really important elders in the community to come and watch it. It wasn't until they accepted it and acknowledged what I've put together here that I felt like I could finally breathe. <laughs> I know that sounds pretty uh, full on, but, but I probably did feel that pressure a lot. Um, and it was only at that point, you know, there was people like Roma Winmar. She, um, came to the screening at Luna and she is a very, very highly respected elder in the Aboriginal community. And she walked up to me afterwards, held my hand tightly, looked me in the eye and said something along the lines of, you know, you can call me Nan. And, you know, I'm getting emotional just thinking about that. That was powerful. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe when I could finally let go of that 
fear that I had throughout the whole thing. But something else that I have said on this topic, because I get at, we do get asked about it, is I had a choice. No one, they'd been, Kaya and Ellen had been trying to make this for a while. Nobody had done it. Nobody was helping them. So I felt like I kind of had a choice, which was uh, do it and um, be scared and feel the fear and potentially get, you know, absolutely crucified for, because of who I am. Um, but the upside of that is if it is good and people do accept it and do accept who, who I am as a director, uh, that's a pretty big upside or walk away because I'm too scared and the walking away because I'm too scared. Look, it crossed my mind, but I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't walk away. I couldn't let them down. They wanted me to do it. Um, great answer, Scott. And I think the most important thing here is that uh, Helen's story has been made and it's been told regardless of who's telling the story. Helen's Absolutely. Story and I, I like would, that. I would welcome somebody to come and take it on and make a feature out of it. Yes. Yeah. I've even got an email today. Somebody who was at a screening uh, on the weekend is considering making a musical <laughs> out of it. So <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. For schools. <laughs> um, so, you know, I feel like I've, in some small way, I've obviously played a part in that and, and I'm happy for it to be shared however in whatever form as long as uh, Helen's story is is being acknowledged. Yes, fantastic, brilliant. Um, as far as yourself goes and, and your, uh, you know, your future-making documentary films, what did you learn about documentary storytelling and filmmaking while making The Grey Line that you will now take into, into your future projects? I think a big one for me is um, finished is better than perfect. Um, I think that's crucial. I respect anybody who finishes anything, even if it's a five-minute film. Like, it is so hard to make a film. <laughs> that's that's the first thing I learned is just how difficult it is. And, you know, I, I can be not necessarily mean to myself, but sometimes my self-talk is not amazing. And so, but I am super proud of myself for actually making this. Yeah. Um, I have learned, I guess, to work within your own parameters and what you feel capable of pulling off this film. And, and I'm so grateful that people like yourself speak so highly of it. It still could be a, could could have been done better. You know, there's th certain parts of it that could have been explored more. But what I learned was what what am I capable of doing and finishing and getting out there and sharing um, and, and do that. And that's where I thought, you know, if I do this as a kind of a heavily interview based documentary, because uh, as you said at the very beginning, I still have a side hustle. I still do marketing as a side hustle because, yeah. you know, making this, I, I, this film was not funded. Like I paid to make this film. Um, so, you know, it's cost me a lot of money to make it. I'm not making money out of it. So I, I wanted, there was only certain things I could do. So I was like, work within the parameters that you've got set realistic goals. And, um, and once you've done that is do whatever it takes to just do it and get it done and, and get that sense of achievement by, by putting something out there. Yes, excellent. Um, to wrap this up, I wanted to uh, ask you about something that I read on, on, uh, I think, I can't remember whose social media channel it was, so, yeah, yeah. but um, some beautiful stories have come out of the Q&As following the screenings. And one recently uh, was a woman who, who introduced herself to Helen to tell her that she could be a part of her family. Uh, can you tell yeah, us about yeah. that story and some of the other stories that have come out of this? Well, that was Roma as well. So, oh, okay, it was Roma, yeah, yes. It was the same screening. Yes. So uh, that was at Luna. Um, I think that was our first public screening. We'd done um, the family and friends. We'd done the film festival. Uh, and then this was, you know, just putting on a, a, a screening for the public. Um, Roma Winmar, who I said is, is a highly, highly respected elder in the community. And I I was so nervous to, to introduce myself to Roma, um, but I introduced myself, then went and grabbed Ellen. This is in the foyer, went and grabbed Ellen, 
introduced her to Ellen. They sat next to each other. And then I saw them. They, When we all got ushered into the cinema, they walked together hand in hand down, sat right in the front row um, and were holding hands throughout the film. And it was at the end of the film um, because a big part of this is that Ellen doesn't feel like she has a, her, she does say her brothers and sisters have been amazing, but, you know, she still feels, you know, a little bit of an outcast. Yeah. Um, so Roma just sort of whispered into her ear, you know, I'll be your auntie. And um, and that was highly emotional for everybody because that was right before the Q&A. So Ellen was quite emotional. Then Kaya found out whilst on stage in front of everyone, she st- started to get really emotional. And it was a beautiful um a beautiful thing to witness. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. That's what, be- that's what she's crying out for is, is yeah. Ellen just wants to be accepted. It must be a real thrill for you to be a spectator here and, and sit back and watch this kind of stuff happen. Yeah, it is surreal. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. I didn't think uh, something that I made would make this much of an impact. Um, and then that's been one of the most surprising and lovely things about this uh this whole experience. And, and one more thing I, I guess I could add to that is whilst I don't think she'll ever be fully healed, there's a definite change in Ellen over the last few years since we've started this. And in particular, since we've put it out there for people to watch, you can see it, you can see it in a, like, you know, like I said, she'll, she'll never, I think fully get over what happened to her, but she, there's something different about her now and that's beautiful to see absolutely beautiful um talk about getting emotional I, I, my eyes are getting quite watery yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh, tough man i cry all the time yes um so i guess the last thing that i'd like to ask you about which i'm sure a lot of our listeners will be very keen to hear now is is how are people going to be able to see this film what what are your plans to get it out there to a wider audience <laughs> good question <laughs> well, i guess it comes back to what i said earlier i'm i don't actually have a proper plan yet, but um, I we definitely the one thing I do know is that it is available for corporate screenings and private screenings at the back lot in Perth. I'm hoping that um, if people um, throughout Australia sort of hear about this and have an interest in it, um, if they jump on the grayline.com.au, can have a read about it, watch the trailer. Um, there's a form on there that comes straight to me. Um, if if you want me to get it to where you live, um, just reach out to me. Like I respond to absolutely everybody. I'm um, always very um, humbled that people are willing to get in touch with me to talk about this project. Um, and and we'll take it from there. Like we are talking to NITV. Uh, it's very early days, but if we could get it on a NITV, part of SBS, um, that would that would be the ultimate that way anyone in Australia could watch it. So we'll see how we go. It's it's extremely early days on that, but fingers crossed. Oh, NITV and SBS just feels like the perfect platform for this. Yes. I really hope it happens for you and, and our listeners who are really keen to see the film now. Um, Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and, and hearing your stories. Um, I can't thank you enough. Uh, so thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. Thank you, Matthew. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening. Find all the latest Australian film news at cinemaaustralia.com.au. You can follow Cinema Australia on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and TikTok.